Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be looking at Matthew 16, 21 through 28, and it's just right off the heels of what we did last week. So, Alan, why don't you in- introduce us to this passage? Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, our gospel lesson for this week takes us into Jesus' first passion prediction in Matthew's gospel. Now, we've seen in our journey through Matthew this year, he reworks the sources uh, that, he's, that he has at hand, and uh, he does this to bring out his unique concerns. And in particular here, he wants to emphasize that following Jesus is a matter of one's actions, not one's, mm-hmm. not just one's words. And of course, we're following up on Peter's confession, right? Right. So Peter's yes. confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. But here we find that following Jesus is a matter of actions. Mm-hmm. And he also expresses the prevalent in that era expectation of a final vindication for the kingdom of God and Jesus as the Son of Man is something that would take place soon. Yes, yes. And so... Obviously, we have this in Mark. Is Matthew similar to Mark, different than Mark? Well, Matthew, you know, as we've seen before, Matthew follows Mark's account in many ways, but he makes significant changes, additions, and omissions that really do have a bearing on the way the passage reads. Um, it's, it's basically the same episode, but it reads in some very significantly different ways from Mark's gospel. And as we've seen before, one of the things that Matthew does is he weaves Jesus' mm-hmm. sayings into his narrative as well as his discourses. So we're going to see that, that Matthew's already visited some of this territory. I, you know, Calvin notes this, and he keeps, and maybe, and you'll have to if correct me later, he keeps saying Matthew's already talked about this. Yes. And so Calvin's going to pick up on this as mm-hmm. well, but I think many of us don't unless we're kind of triggered to note that it's there. You know, but what I'm saying is that we just tend to take it kind of very face value. Well, and one of the one of the ways we can we can address that is if you have a proper synopsis of the gospel. Right. Now, I have the synop I have the Greek synopsis of the four gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the end of the passage where it shows the parallels in in the canonical mm-hmm. gospels, it also gives these additional passages where the same or similar sayings are quoted elsewhere oh, in the Gospels. And that is helpful. It's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there, the, 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 there is an English translation of this I have that. That's what I have. That, that I, and I, don't, I used to have it years ago. I don't remember anymore if, it's to, if it also does that. But that, that's one way to, way to, to address to, to that. Help, to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, how does Matthew begin this? So he begins just by telling us that from, time, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised in verse 21. And, you know, that's, that's language we're familiar with from the passion predictions that we've been dealing with in Matthew and in Mark and Luke. Now, while both Matthew and Mark tell us that it was at this point that Jesus, in Jesus' ministry that he began to tell the disciples about his death, Matthew adds from that time on. And we discussed earlier, there's some, there's some kind of structural markers in, in Matthew, and this is one of them, and uh, it's an important structural marker here um, in, in Matthew 4, mm-hmm. 17, right after the temptation. Right. You know, Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus right. began to preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Right. Yeah. So it really is a turning point. It is, yeah. in, in a yeah. very real way. Yeah. yeah. Now, also, we need to note that in keeping with Matthew's emphasis here in this part of Matthew's gospel on the disciples as the foundation of the new community, and that's, that's Matthew's emphasis. That's not mm-hmm. in the others. But in keeping with that emphasis, Jesus delivers this prediction only to the disciples. In Matthew. Interesting. Now, in the others, it's a little bit ambiguous um, as to who's there and who's not there. But in Mark, for example, right after that, the crowds are there. So you almost get the idea that Jesus is is, is asking the question, "Who do the who do people say that the son that, that the Son of Man is?" Mm-hmm. And the crowds are kind of listening in. Mm, yeah. From Mark's so, gospel. And this is very. This is very much different. It's it's only the disciples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so, you know, I think what's interesting for us, of course, about this is Jesus's uh, explanation of his fate or awareness of his fate. Nope. So explain, explain how do we understand that? Well, it could be taken in a couple of ways. You know, I think most of us just see it as, well, he knew that this was God's plan. 
and that's one of the options. Mm-hmm. But we could. It's also possible that he just simply knew that the vocation of a true prophet and servant of God was rejection, suffering, and death at the hands of the people they served, mm-hmm. because that was, you know, that was sort of the story of the prophets, right? Mm-hmm. And this could have been on Jesus' mind, especially in the light of John the Baptist's fate. You know, that's the first time I think I've thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. So that's. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, keep keep. Well, keep and that's an idea that I got from Gene Boring mm-hmm, in his commentary mm-hmm. on the New Interpreter's Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, at the same time, though, the language of prediction, the language of this passion prediction, which is essentially that of Mark, uh, reflects Jesus' knowledge that his rejection, suffering, and death were part of God's plan. You know, he says mm-hmm. the Son of Man must, and this indicates that this is a divine necessity. Uh, So this is part of God's plan to bring about the redemption and restoration promised in the kingdom of God. And, um, uh, you know, this is something I discovered in in preparation. Um, We see see in these predictions the language of being handed over. And uh, something I learned in preparation for this this, uh, podcast was that um, the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 53.6 um, is basically mm. the Lord has handed him over for our sins. And, and the Hebrew has, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Laid oh. on him. So it's a, different, it's a different idea. So And this happens in the Septuagint. You know, sometimes the Septuagint interprets the, 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 the Hebrew of the Masoretic text in, in a little bit different way. And so it says in, in, the, in the Septuagint, the Lord has handed him over for our sins. And that language of Jesus being handed over for our sins is is language that's going to be kind of play a role in, in the in the passion predictions in the gospels and also um, um, in the New Testament. Now what I would say about this is there's probably a balance here between Jesus' awareness of what the Jewish leaders were up to and Mm-hmm. you know, his awareness of God's plan. And so there's, there's also kind of a balance here between the responsibility of the Jewish religious leaders for their actions and the sovereignty of God at work in, in promoting his redemptive mm-hmm. purpose. Yeah. So how does it continue? So Matthew continues by telling us that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. Ah, well, that's a very human response, right? He wants to hear that, right? Right, right. And um, his rebuke, which is only found, the words of his rebuke is only, are mm. only found in, in Matthew. You know, uh, Mark says that, that, that Peter rebuked him, but doesn't have the words. And, and mm. it's a Greek, it's a very highly idiomatic phrase in the Greek, ilios soy. And it, and it really means uh, literally merciful to you. Mm. <laughs> literally would be merciful to you. Interesting. Um, but it's a highly idiomatic phrase that occurs in the Septuagint in prayers for God to show mercy oh, wow. or to have favor or to forgive his people. And it could be translated, may God in his mercy spare you from I this. I love that. Yeah. That's nice. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. But it, it's probably a little bit stronger, and that's why you know most English translations um, – um, use either God forbid or heaven forbid because it's a, it's just a little probably a little bit stronger mm-hmm. than may God in his mercy spare you from this uh-huh. but because of the highly idiomatic nature of the phrase English translations are all oh, over the I'm page oh I'm sure they are yeah <laughs> but and, and you know some have asked well what was behind this um, thinking on Peter's part and very likely behind this idea that this will never be to you, literally in the Greek, mm-hmm. is likely his understanding of Jesus' role as Messiah, which right. he's just confessed in the previous episode. Right. So he's just had this high point of, you're, right. the, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and now Jesus says, yeah, the Son of Man has to be betrayed and, and rejected and killed. And, and, and you know, Peter's like, no, you're the Messiah. That doesn't work. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, which I think suggests he just didn't really understand or, right. or he will gain a new understanding perhaps i but i'm just taken aback by the one that I, you said is too light because for me that just sheds a whole new light on it that i think mm-hmm. i i needed to have because it always has felt a little out of place but that made sense to me this this one this one that says may god in his mercy spare you from oh, this right, right. for me that all of a sudden is oh that makes that suddenly makes more sense. For well, me. that that's 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 kind of a little. I mean, and you see, I mean, so the, the phrase is used in a wide variety of ways. 
here, and so you, with, with something like this, you have to use this immediate context to kind of determine. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it's a rebuke yeah. to Jesus, we should probably see a little bit more of an edge right. than that translation. Than that translation. Yeah. And yet yeah. it's still somehow helpful. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. It, it, if nothing else, I have, yes, we have that instruction. And it's edgier than that, but yet it's that somehow makes mm. sense to me. Sure. So yeah. Sure. All right. So moving on. Well, Jesus' response to Peter is surprising, especially in light of what he said to Peter in our lesson last week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> last week, he pronounced a blessing on Peter because the Father had revealed to him Jesus' true identity. But in response to Peter's rebuke, he turned and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Yeah. You're a hindrance to me, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on mm-hmm. human things. Um, and, and, you know, get behind me, Satan, um, likely intentionally echoes Jesus' response to the temptation in Matthew 4.10, away mm-hmm. with you, Satan. Mm-hmm. And in the Greek, it's hupage opisomu satana in, in here. And it's in Matthew 4.10, it's hupage satana. So it's, you know, there's a right. lot of, there's, there, it's a, there's some distinct similarity. I think, I don't think any reader or hearer of the gospel in Greek right. in that day could have missed that. Well, and Calvin picks up on this too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is edgy, right? Mm-hmm. So it kind of mm-hmm. makes sense within the, in the reflection of the other one also being right. edgy. But uh, this is, um, I, 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 it, it does, it opens your eyes. And it's, 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 it's frightening, I think, yeah. to read, right? Well, and, you know, essentially in seeking to prevent what Jesus knows to be God's purpose for him, Peter has gone from being a rock upon which to build the new community of faith to being a stumbling block. Mm. Now, the new, new RSV um, updated edition has devo- has has you're a hindrance to me. The right. the, the original in new RSV has stumbling block, mm-hmm. but um, um, you know the the point is that that you know he's become a stumbling block or a temptation for Jesus to depart from the course that he oh, knows right. to be right. Oh, so it's kind of uh, there's a high irony here because you know Peter makes this confession. You are, you know, you're a Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Now it's, you know, son of man will, will be rejected and killed and, and all right. of this. And Peter says, you know, this can never happen to you and, and get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block. Right. <laughs> so, so I think the play on rock and stumbling block is, is intentional. And again, I don't think the original audience would have missed that. Wow. Yeah. And it's, um, I just love pulling this apart because it's, uh, the, the language is so it's it's so vibrant and so intentional yeah, yeah. and um, really gives us gives us this this clear picture of both Peter and Jesus and in this this if you will now turning towards Jerusalem and mm-hmm. so it's um, yeah I thank you it's very helpful yeah so as in as in Mark and Luke Jesus first clear passing prediction clear passion prediction in Matthew. There's an allusion to the cross earlier in Matthew chapter right. 10. Um, this first clear passion, passion prediction in Matthew is followed by his call that those who would be his disciples must take the same path of suffering. And we're familiar with this. The difference from Mark, again, is that in Matthew, this call is only given to the disciples. In Mark, it's explicitly given to the crowd and to the disciples. Mm-hmm. But in, in Matthew, it's only given to his disciples. If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Well, that's Matthew mm-hmm. 16, 24. So in a sense then, in Matthew, it is more of a call to recognize what discipleship means. Because these are people who have already responded to the call to follow Jesus. And so it's a call to recognize that discipleship means following Jesus on a path that will lead him to die on the cross. And so it's going to lead them to a similar fate. Mm-hmm. And in the original setting of Matthew's gospel, it is likely that this was heard as a call to those who follow Jesus to be willing to literally lay down their lives as martyrs. Mm-hmm. And we know that happened, and, and so um, it, it it's, makes sense that in that original setting, um, that, that's likely some part of what, what Matthew may have intended and certainly part of what Matthew's community heard. The other side of that call, however, especially in Matthew's context, is that those who want or choose, and the language is very intentional here, it's, mm-hmm. it's not just you stumble on this, you choose this, yes, right? Yes, yes. Those who want or choose to follow Jesus are to orient their lives toward the good news of the kingdom mm-hmm. of God, that Jesus has 
acted decisively in, in mm-hmm. they, I'm sorry, that God has acted decisively in Jesus. And so then the result of this radical reorientation of life in Matthew's gospel is to do as Jesus did and seek to fulfill all righteousness right. by devoting one's life not to the pursuit of self-interest, mm-hmm. that's the denial, right. but rather to the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose. Yeah, yeah. So much there. <laughs> oh, it's oh, it, there is so much, so much, so much there. there. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the one of the challenges with this passage, especially with self denial, is that in the history of the church, a lot of people have taken this as a call to asceticism, right? But I think it's, it's important to to point out that many have recognized that you know, self emptying can be just as much of a self uh, interest as self fulfillment, right? Right, and so right. so you know you can still have a, a lot of lot of emphasis on yourself if you're if you're adopting asceticism as much as if you're just out there you know. It, oh, the absolutely, life. that's yeah. the whole thing, and yeah. and I, you're right. People don't un- always understand what that means, but yeah, asceticism is a, kind of a very selfish. In- it can be. Take. It can it be. Can be. Yeah, and, and and so the, the the point here is not not necessarily just to. To, to just to do away with self, but rather to reorient one's life toward the kingdom of God, right. toward following yes. Jesus' example, toward fulfilling all righteousness. Yes. It's a yes. different orientation yes. of life. Yes, very good. Thank other you. Other than self-interest. Right. Yeah. So then Matthew follows Mark in explaining what Jesus meant by the call to deny oneself and take up one's cross. He says in verse 25, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for mm-hmm. my sake will find it. Um, in spite of all that those who follow Jesus' example uh, of living in accordance with the righteousness of God's kingdom may suffer as a result of that decision, mm-hmm. as, as and that's kind of the implication of the previous verse, the promise is that they will find life. Yes. And I think we should say, recognize that suke here refers to life as a whole and not to some spiritual dimension of life called the soul. Mm. And there's some there's some confusion because suke can mean soul, right? Right, right. But... but Especially given sort of a Jewish uh, context or Hebrew Bible mm. context, the Greek word, the, the Hebrew word nephesh, which suke translates, you know, oftentimes um, in the Septuagint, it, it's not it's not about a part of one's life. It's about one's life as a whole. This is really important too, because obviously that's one of the first Greek words you learn, and you learn to translate <laughs> yeah, it as soul. Yeah, yeah. And um, this is this is that nuance that I'm so appreciative of, because I think it'd be so easy to do my own translation and miss the depth of the word, yeah. and even with the even with a lot of the commentaries, you don't pick up on on this depth of this word. And well, and you know, I re- I remember. I think the I think the original definition I learned was soul, life, self, and but but we just tend to go. We just think they're they're all equal. But really, in in the, in the context of the Bible, right. uh, suke refers to 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 one's life as a whole and and not you know some some spiritual dimension of life. Well, and in my own personal world right now my whole emphasis is on wholeness yeah and so this fits so well into some of the things i'm emphasizing and uh so i know what i'm preaching on (laughs) i mean that's a i mean that's a that's a biblical emphasis you know and 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 there's a sense in which you know that's what's going on here it's that the whole of life needs to be reoriented towards the kingdom of god that's great that's great okay so you know in contrast then those who try to save their life by seeking their own interests will lose it and so this is part this kind of fills out the meaning of what um um Jesus was talking about with the call to to deny oneself and to take up one's cross. Mm. So this is part of what that means. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. One thing we should we we, sh- we could note if, in comparison with Mark is that Mark's version of this saying preserves the parallelism of losing versus saving life a lot better. Matthew's version uh, talks about f- you know those who want to save their life will lose it; those who lose their life will find it. And so it's a little bit different, mm. but. Um, the, there's something going on in the back, background is this is this fact that he's already cited a similar version of this saying in the mm-hmm. missionary discourse in chapter 10. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And that's in Matthew 10, 39. Oh, wow. There's a parallel in Luke 17, 33. So it seems like this saying is not just from Mark in this context of the gospel, but it's also a saying of Jesus that was in cue, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And so there may be some prehistory here in the oh, oral wow. tradition that this was a saying of Jesus that was that was preserved in the oh, oral tradition. Wow. And yeah. so so we find Matthew citing, you know, a, a slightly different version of this saying earlier 
in the missionary discourse. And this is what I was alluding to earlier, you know, that mm-hmm. Matthew's already visited this. And, and, and I think that's intentional on Matthew's part. And so the fact that Matthew's coming back to this, and he's going he's gonna to hit this point in a number of different ways throughout mm-hmm. his gospel, shows how important this idea is in, in Matthew's theology mm-hmm. and, and in his mind for his community. So, um, um, and so I think the fact that Matthew has already cited that version of the saying mm-hmm. probably influenced his choice of words in regard to right. finding one's life versus saving in mm-hmm. Mark. Um, I kind of love that that's a, just a saying that probably was spread around. I'm, mm-hmm. And of course they had that kind of thing. We do today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, well, and I believe it's in Thomas as well. So this is one of those sayings that we, we I mean, when, when you have that kind of, of multiple attestation for a saying, there's, I mean, even the Jesus seminar would very likely say this was an original Jesus, saying of this Jesus. This is something he said, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and, and so, um, um, but, you know, it gives us a lot of confidence, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in the, the originality of that saying. Mm, I love it. Uh, but it also, I think, again, as I said, because Matthew emphasizes this in several different ways. It shows um, that that it's important for Matthew that one actually follows through with the commitment to discipleship in the way one lives, mm-hmm. and that this was a concern for him. and And we'll see later that you know he 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 brings this up in other in other mm-hmm. ways in the gospel as well. So again, I think this this idea of of um, uh, losing life versus saving life, or losing life versus finding life echoes the possibility or the probability that orienting one's life to, to Jesus' example and message could lead to martyrdom, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. uh, in, in, in some respects, you know, the cross, taking up the cross may have been a more literal thing in Matthew's context. Right. Now, now, we know that Luke, for example, says take up one's cross daily. Well, you can't give your life every day. Right, You can't right. literally die every day. Right. right? So, so there's a figurative interpretation in Luke. We've okay. talked about that before. Mm-hmm. But, but it seems like in, in Matthew and Mark that perhaps while there is a dimension of you know, living in a sacrificial way for the sake of the kingdom of God, there is also perhaps wow. in the background this idea of literally giving yeah. one's life. Yeah, yeah. wow. Okay, and so um, as we move ahead and we start talking about then um, this call to discipleship, um, how does it reflect Mark? Is it the same, different? Well, again, Matthew is following Mark, you know, uh, uh, to a great extent in this passage, but as as we've seen all along, he he has some significant re- contributions that 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 you know that bring out his own interests. And so um, in the next verse, in verse uh, 26, basically um, Matthew is filling out the meaning of the call to discipleship here, again, still by phrasing the challenge of the previous verse, those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life will find it. Um, here it's what profit will what it will profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life, or what will they give in return for their life? So this is just kind of filling out mm-hmm. the meaning of that more in sort of a, a, a in the reversed mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And it also I think it also contributes the idea that part of what denying oneself and taking up one's cross means for discipleship is to, is abandoning gaining wealth or gaining the whole world as the orientation of one's mm-hmm. life. Um, so. And we we'll we'll see that we've seen that in Luke's gospel. We'll see that in Matthew's gospel. Right. That's going to be an issue right. in Matthew's gospel that, that that wealth and faith aren't necessarily compatible in Matthew's mindset. Right, right. Um, so you know, here in, in Matthew, gaining the whole world leads to forfeiting life itself. Wow, but. Yeah, I get it. I get yeah. it. I get where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we should note that the verbs here are all in the future tense, right? Mm. And so again, that implies that the life that Matthew's talking about is something that transcends right. this world. Right. Oh wow. This it's just really rich. Thank mm-hmm. you. Okay. And so then, uh, then he moves on, but he he, mo- he moves away from Mark. Yeah, Ma- Matthew leaves out Mark saying about those who are ashamed of Jesus. He says, in those who are ashamed of me and my words in this generation of them, the Son of Man will be ashamed, you know, in the future. But he's already quoted it. That's because he's already quoted it in the missionary mm-hmm. discourse in right. Matthew 10, 33. And instead, he focuses on um, the coming of Jesus as the Son of Man in judgment in mm-hmm. verse 27. So, so 
Matthew kind of skips all that and focus goes straight to this idea of the coming of the Son of Man in judgment. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. That's the new RSV mm-hmm. in verse 27. Now, the new RSV, along with most English translations, has translated out one of the major interpretive problems in this text. Literally, Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to come. Hmm. About to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Hmm. And that's actually the way the, the, the Good News translation mm-hmm. renders it. Okay. Which suggests that he's, he's saying that the fulfillment of the kingdom of God was something that was going to happen soon. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it didn't happen that way has been perhaps one of the most difficult problems facing interpreters of the Gospels, at least in the modern mm-hmm. era, the right. post-Enlightenment era, the, the delay of the parousia. Right, right, absolutely, right. yeah. And so, you know, it seems clear that the authors of the New Testament documents had the expectation that, um, that Jesus coming in, in glory would happen soon. It seems clear they had that. I mean, in 1 mm-hmm. Thessalonians 4.17, you know, Paul speaks about those who've already died, but he says they're not going to be left out. We who are alive, you know, mm-hmm. he expects the, 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 the coming of Jesus to happen in his lifetime, mm-hmm. he says, "We who are alive," um, and 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 in Revelation one one, um, you know, the, the 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 prophet or the seer of, of Revelation says that this is a this is a revelation of what must what must happen soon, and so you have this you have this mm-hmm. notion of. Of, of soon or, mm-hmm. or that, 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 that these things are going to happen. And I, I, it, seems, it seems entirely reasonable that Matthew shared that expectation. Now, for me, it's right. an open question in my mind whether or not Jesus did as well. That, and well, I always wonder, I, I, I guess I've always wondered what is implied by soon. I mean, and maybe that's, I mean, obviously they thought within their lifetime or within the next, you know, 100 years, whereas... And I guess the historian in me has always said our our little um, human, you know, mm-hmm. history is actually quite small in the entire age of the earth. Right. So soon could be a lot. lot. But, well, we're gonna, but maybe we're gonna, too literal gonna, about He's going to address that in a couple of verses. Okay. So, so it, even more. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. So then um, this idea in verse 27 that the Son of Man is going to come um, in, in this way alludes to the vindication of Jesus who has suffered and been rejected as the son of man by the Jewish religious mm-hmm. leaders precisely by being exalted to the position of final judge, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It also supports the idea that discipleship is a matter of producing the fruit of the kingdom by fulfilling all righteousness. And I'm using the fruit of the kingdom, I'm, I'm intentionally alluding to the parable of, of the sower, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because it's about bearing fruit, and the fruit that, that Matthew's gospel uh, envisions is fulfilling all righteousness. Mm. For Matthew, authentic discipleship involves the principles of, for example, you will know them by their fruits in Matthew mm-hmm. seven twenty. Also, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, even as Jesus did. Mm-hmm. And that's Matthew seven twenty one. right the next verse. But it also culminates in the judgment of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, 35, 1 through 46, which, of course, we look to as in, for inspiration in the PCUSA, where the principle is, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me in verse 40. And mm-hmm. later on, to the extent mm-hmm. that you didn't do it, you didn't do it to me. So what counts, again, in Matthew's gospel, what counts for discipleship is what one does, not merely what one confesses. And this gave some of the reformers, especially Luther, fits. Yeah, right, right. And it still gives some people fits. Right, right. Because we we think that this statement that 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 Jesus will repay, right, uh, right. you know, repay us for what we do, that that our that our discipleship is based on what we do. Right. Um, we think it, it it invalidates grace, or that if right. it's, that if there's grace, then we don't have to worry about judgment. Calvin doesn't struggle with this. That's good. That I'm but, interested but to hear what he has is, to say. This is typical of, yeah. of Calvin kind of moving a step beyond Luther. Yeah. But Luther is trying to really exclude everything that doesn't fit right. his idea. And, and Calvin's theology is more sophisticated. Yeah. Uh, but it gets him into new problems, which we right. all know of. So, right. yeah. Right. 
So then the lesson for this week concludes with Jesus' declaration that truly I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom in verse 28. So again, Matthew has altered Mark's version. In Mark's version, it's different. And, and in Mark's version, you could read this as a statement that basically you're going to see the glory of the kingdom or the power of the kingdom. And very likely it could refer, it seems to refer in Mark to the transfiguration, which happened Mm-hmm. just a few days later, mm-hmm. or at, at the very least, it refers to the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but in Matthew, that's not, that's not the mm-hmm. reference here because it's clearly referring to the coming of the son of man and the glory of the father. Right. 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 So it's clearly referring to the parousia. And so it's, I mean, some standing here will not taste death before they see the parousia. Right. <laughs> so again, this kind of puts, the, 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 you asked the question about soon. Well, it's, it's really soon. Within right? your life, within yeah. the lifetime of the people he was addressing, right? Mm-hmm. It seems that Matthew, and I think it's it's unavoidable that Matthew has, so he's he's reworked it a little bit from Mark, and he has interpreted this saying as a reference to the parousia of Jesus, not to the transfiguration, not the resurrection. Mm-hmm. That Matthew could do so in a time when presumably there were many in the early church who had already tasted death. Right. I mean, it may serve as a comfort, but it seems to raise questions as well. Now, if we're in, for example, in First Thessalonians, chapter four, um, Paul talks about you know he, he he talks about how those who have died won't be left out. We who are alive will be taken to to meet Jesus when he comes, and you know he says, and so we will be with the Lord. You know, so comfort one another with these words. So the idea that Jesus is going to come soon is meant as a comfort. Um, and so, you know, perhaps there is that sense of comfort. And, and Lutz had a pretty good idea about this. He, he said, you know, uh, the Son of Man who comes to judge is none other than Jesus who has walked with them, who has, you know, who precedes them in suffering and resurrection, who um, calls them to follow him even when they fail, <laughs> mm-hmm. and who promises to be with them to the end of the world, right, as, as the exalted mm-hmm. one. So, so it's a little bit in line with what our study catechism says, you know, that, that we don't have to fear judgment because we know the one who will judge us is the one who gave his life for us. Um, but th- there, have been, there have been serious questions about this, um, especially in light of Matthew's emphasis that judgment is based on works. And so, yes, yes. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and in here he's talking to the disciples. So he's not right. talking to outsiders That's true. here. That's true. He's talking to the church. Uh, and so the question with is, you know, how does this judgment apply to the church? And so, you know, we tend to think of like the sheep and the goats in Matthew 30, in Matthew 40, um, 25 as, you know, well, the goats are obviously um, not part of the, the church and, and, and the, the sheep are the ones who are. Right, right. But um, uh, it could be read a little bit differently. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the timing of these, these matters, I would say, in my mind, the timing of these matters is left open by Jesus. I don't think. In my mind, for the most part, Jesus really, you know, pins down the timing. So I think this is Matthew's revision of Jesus here. Matthew is interested in in in, in promoting this idea. Right. Um, I think. Right. I think well, when you look at what Jesus says elsewhere, it seems pretty clear to me that Jesus leaves it open. But I don't think I, I wish. I think what we should come away with in terms of this question of well. If it was soon and it didn't happen, what are we supposed to do about that? Uh, the uncertainty of the timing doesn't diminish the confidence. And this is, I think, the point, is that there's a confidence that faith has in the future victory of God's right. kingdom. Yes. And that, yes. That, that idea is abundantly borne witness by the New Testament documents. Yes. I so think, I, think that's, I think that's sort of the underpinning for this. I think, that, I think that's brilliant and um, makes a lot of sense because I think this bothers a lot of people. Yeah, so. it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks. Hi.
Hi, friends, we're back, and we're going to take a look at particularly what Calvin had to say about this passage. And as always, I'm, I'm always fascinated to find out what Calvin <laughs> has to say. So uh, tell us what you found, Christy. Sure, sure. As Alan said, I'm just looking at Calvin's commentaries today because Calvin, unlike Luther, does not get quite as caught up with the language. He's, his theology is more robust than Luther. And I, d- I don't like to uh, pick on Luther because he was such a, a brilliant mind at, at the time, but Calvin's as Calvin's a whole generation later. He's had more time to be in dialogue. Um, he's also more heavily influenced by a human, a humanist education than Luther was. So, with well, all- and, you know, to some extent, the whole sola emphasis that came out of Luther and Lutheranism, and, and we've embraced that in the Reformed right. tradition. But that sola kind of reflects some some limitations, right? It does because it does. because yes, it is grace alone, but grace leads to a life that is transformed. Right, right. So Calvin's a little bit, I, I, I find him, I, I find this typical of his thought. And I, what I love about this is you're seeing these kind of depth, deep intellectual and theological questions that he has that, again, remind us that he's not as rigid as the Calvinism tradition wants him to mm-hmm. be. So Calvin sees this particular verse um, as a transition into what he calls the time of struggle when Jesus would prepare his disciples for his coming death. He did not use first passion passion prediction like Alan suggested, but again, he's still... Um, collapsing all these gospels. So, he- well, and to be fair, in Matthew ten thirty eight, you know, um, in the missionary discourse, there is this reference to those who will not, who do not take up their cross, are not worthy of me. So, there's right. already an illusion in Matthew. There is, there is. It's and not a clear illusion, but there's already an illusion before this. And, and he will reference Matthew ten. So I, he picks up on. I mean, he's we've already determined he's quite a biblical scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, he considers this a time of struggle, and according to Calvin, it is this time that Jesus. Must, must teach the disciples that the kingdom of God, quote, would be ushered in, not in great pomp, nor, not with great riches, not with the joyful applause of the world, but by a shameful death. Mm, wow. Yeah. So Calvin claimed that it was important to transition the disciples from looking at the future in human terms and into godly terms. As Calvin interprets this, the disciples still did not really understand what Jesus did and that this kingdom was not... Um, was not an early one. The conflict was that the disciples could not perceive that anything disgraceful could happen to Jesus, Mm -hmm. and yet he would suffer at the cross, the most disgraceful type of death possible. They just, it was in, Inconceivable, the, and I think that's what was behind Peter's reaction. Exactly, and we talked about that. Fathom it. Here's the Messiah. He's a king. He's all these things. He can't die this Mm -hmm. death, and so Mm -hmm. Calvin really wants. believes the scripture really is is trying to pull those two things together this mm-hmm. and he even brings in Paul there it's just nonsense it doesn't make sense unless you believe and he 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 pulls that in so the significance of this time of struggle was not only the physical journey to Jerusalem but also teaching disciples disciples what it meant for Jesus to be the son of god and Jesus instructs that or excuse me Calvin instructs that pastors must always hold the promise of resurrection, mm-hmm. along with the yeah. disgrace of the crucifixion. That's so, a good. That's a good insight because um, I, I think you know if, if if I don't I don't think Peter made it past the Son of Man must be rejected and die. I don't think he made it pa- to the to the on the third day. You're right. Be raised. You know, I don't I don't think he and and I'm not sure to what extent resurrection was even. All that prevalent. I mean, the Pharisees believed in a general resurrection in the end. Mm-hmm. But the idea that that Jesus would die and be resurrected a few days later, mm-hmm. that was not even in their framework. Right. Uh, their, their conceptual framework. Yeah, right, right. And so what is, what is interesting for Calvin is that he remarks that while this instruction was the next step in understanding Christ's identity, he notes the deci- that the disciples were not yet ready. They, mm-hmm. It didn't, as, as Alan said, it didn't make sense. Their faith was too weak at this point. And this is why Christ demands their silence. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting mm. because as we talked about earlier in Mark and Luke, it, others might have been able to hear this discussion. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Matthew, just, the disciples, just the disciples. And, and yeah. he suggests because they didn't get it yet. Yeah. Um, and that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Because in, in Matthew, you know, there, there is this sense that Jesus is preparing for this new community. Yeah. And, and, and 
preparing the disciples right. to, to, to delete it. Delete it. Yeah. 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 So I, I did a little more verse by verse by verse work, not, not like Alan bid, but in, in 1622, Calvin notes that Jesus pulled Peter aside to rebuke him instead of confronting him in front of the others. So he, he thought that was significant. Hmm. Um, and in that Calvin notes that Peter was trying to pull Christ to his side. In other words, even though Peter had, who I, excuse me, had, identified who Christ was, his orientation in his humanity called, caused him to admonish Christ. Sure. So in other words, Calvin is really discussing how this passage pits the sin of humanity against the perfection of Christ. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This may not sound like a big deal, but if we consider the broader theology of Calvin, we realize that his criticism parallels his emphasis on the sovereignty of God, and therefore this move by Peter is actually an, att- an attempt to subvert providence. Oh, okay. <laughs> and furthermore, this emphasizes that we are nothing without God, Therefore, even with the best of human intentions, we mm. fall short. Mm-hmm. Of course, he then attacks the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, you do, right? Yeah, right. Where he claims that they boast of their devotions, but that in God, this, but this is something God would actually mm. reject. Mm. And up. Well, I think with, with reference to Peter, he uh, it's it's interesting that he's talking in this way because it kind of it kind of breaks it down in very practical terms and almost very human terms, you know, and and right. you know kind of explains this, you know, you, you have your mind set on human things, not on not right. on the things of God. Right, right, and I think it's, I mean, you know, I read this and you don't, I think when I first read this passage, I didn't like Peter because he would talk up to Jesus like that, but yet. You know, in retrospect, I think there's this humanity of, of Peter there. I mean, it's this, how can I even conceive of the world without, I mean, your, your, your mind is so set on, on your human experience. And um, it, it, it's time it's, it's with identifying who Christ is and embodying who he is. Mm-hmm. I think we see that in this exchange. And so I like Peter better now. I, I understand mm-hmm. him more. Mm-hmm. But well, I remember when I first read this, past, I just huh. didn't like it. Yeah. It was very upsetting yeah. um, to see. Who, who, who rebukes Jesus? Right, right, <laughs> yeah. In Matthew sixteen twenty three, Calvin focuses on this verse as a significant, as significant claim that Jesus' call to get behind me, Satan, is significant, as it is a sign that Jesus really hated Peter's response and even gave to him the name Satan. Huh. He notes the word apage. Hupage was used by Luke in chapter 4 to repulse the devil. So in Calvin's terms, this word, which he defines as go away, is directly related with this named evil. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I thought Alan might. Well, I mean, Hupage, Hupage, <laughs> I think is used in exorcisms also in, in the mm-hmm. gospel, in the synoptic gospel okay. tradition. So that may be part of what he's reflecting here. But yeah, it's, it's clearly used in, in the t- temptation narrative. Yeah, definitely. So then Jesus explains that Peter is in this way um, part of Christ's work of his call. And Peter's actions were in direct opposition to Christ's call. And this is, according to Calvin, a direct affront to God. So he's, he's very critical of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it can be interpreted as a direction to all of us that we should always obey God. And again, that whole sovereignty of God following God's yeah, law. Yeah. And so when Jesus when Peter did this, it was I mean, it was it was a, a great sin in itself, mm, right? As, wow. as as he would do it. Of course, he then returns to the Roman Catholic Church to claim that their boasting is really Satan, the exact opposite of the call of God to humility. Huh, interesting. <laughs> I just it cracks you up because you're going along with this really pretty sophisticated analysis and then the attack comes. <laughs> Well, I mean, knowing knowing the confessions from from the 16th century, you know, it's it seems like the reformers never missed a good opportunity to bash the well, Roman Catholics. Well, and I think because they are all brought up in that tradition, and so right. to be to shift, and that's that's the uh, that's the orientation to to shift your own space to this Reformation background. You always have to be thinking of. Why this position makes sense? Right. Why the other one doesn't? Right. And and you well, see they're, that they're swimming against the stream, right? I mean, they're 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 going against the, they're going against centuries of tradition, exactly. Here. And so they're they're having to constantly justify their their views and their mm-hmm. existence, even and and even their their choice to to um, step out of the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So knowing that all of the disciples were in a similar space in their faith to Peter, um, Jesus called on all of them to take up their cross. 
What is interesting is that although the disciples have been following Jesus up to this point, Calvin regards them as really clueless. Huh, interesting. And I, I wonder if that's alluding to Mark as well. Well, it could be because in, in Matthew, you don't get that. I didn't I mean, think so you know, either. You, you do have this, as I mentioned before, you do have this emphasis on the disciples as you have little faith. Mm-hmm. But, the, but in comparison with Mark, the disciples in Matthew do get what Jesus is exactly. up to a, a lot more. So I, I think this is probably, we're seeing a little bit of the harmonization process. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is in the transformation of the disciples into this new understanding of who Christ is that they are called to imitate him and, quote, be prepared for the same course. Now, I will say, I mean, he's accurately reflecting the fact that, you know, this is, um, aside aside from that bare allusion in Matthew 10, 38, this is, this is you know, this is where... Uh, Jesus begins to teach them that discipleship is going to mean suffering right. and, and following a path of sacrifice, perhaps even sacrificing one's life. Right. You know, up to this point, he's been proclaiming the kingdom of God and and doing the works of the kingdom of God and and those kinds of things, mm-hmm. and and so that is a significant shift. And and I don't think any of them, when they followed Jesus, when they accepted the call to follow Jesus you know, had even a clue that it would, it would cost them so dearly. Right. Right. I found, um, I found this whole part of Conlon's commentary really interesting as the disciples were called to respond to Christ's invitation. Calvin clearly sees a response to God as different than a work, but mm. yet he recognizes that there is effort on on part on the response of the disciples, and it actually reminded me a little more of Methodism than Cal, than Calvin is normally given. This idea that you have to mm-hmm. that Christ reaches down, but that you also have to mm-hmm. reach up. Mm-hmm. Um, but in suggesting that the disciples had to respond to Christ, he is refuting the kind of determinism that is often attributed to Calvinism. Mm. Quote, they are said to bear the cross who take it on their shoulders. In mm-hmm. other words, you have to respond. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you start, you can see all the pieces of Calvin's theology putting together. Well, if you have to respond, but your response is then predetermined, then it means that, you know, irresistible grace. Well, if you can resist grace, that means, I mean, you could see right. how he gets to right. the reprobate right. because... Calvin, Calvin still has, in, in all of his emphasis on human agency, or on, 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 on all of his emphasis on divine sovereignty, still has room for human agency and human responsibility. It does, yeah. it does. And you can see how he... You know, he could, it's like you could get in his brain and you could feel him. Well, but if this is true, then this has to be true. So how does scripture fit this, you know, this, this theological puzzle? And unfortunately, then we get into to trouble because then people try to turn that into some system that uh, is, um, is just one theology. It's just, it's, it's, it's. It's, I think Calvin, that's why I kept working on it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. right? So one of the next theological points that Calvin notes is the immortality of the soul. And he points mm-hmm. out that man was not made just to enjoy a few days on earth, but made for eternity. So that's almost a sense of universalism, actually, when you think of that. So this is important for the education um, as human beings become so caught up in their earthly life that they actually let the temporal world take over their purpose to ask the questions of why they were born. But I find it interesting in this section, Calvin contradicts himself because the soul is considered immortal, but then he says that one can, quote, cast their soul knowingly and willingly into destruction. (laughs) In other words, the soul seems to be immortal if you respond positively to Christ. Mm. In other words, some agency of yourself. Obviously, everyone would do this, irresistible grace, unless they don't, and therefore we run into his doctrine of predestination because it would be the only explanation as to why someone does not accept Christ. That's kind of a convoluted path to get there. (laughs) Isn't it crazy? So what I'm trying to show here is that there are pieces of theology that we read in Calvin. Um, One comment leads to another and to another and to another until he has this kind of system, but his system is actually inconsistent yeah. with some of the things that he actually says and works yeah. through. Well, and while, while you know, I think the general gist of this is that, that there is, that life, the, the hope of life extends beyond this earth, this world, to eternity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as I said before, soul in this context is not 
talking about some right. indestructible spiritual part of of person. It's right. talking about your life as a whole. Exactly. And and um, I I think that's part of where Calvin gets into trouble here is right. because he tries to separate that out. I agree. I agree. And that would be a whole interesting study on itself. Is yeah. is soul is, is understood by reformers, and I think what I want us also to think about is what the limitations of like. You can see him thinking. You can see there this kind of step towards interpretation, but yet kind of limited within that kind of Reformation era construct. And how um, we're only partway mm-hmm. in Calvin. Mm-hmm. We're only partway to really understand right. the fullness of this passage. Right. right. And so um, I just think that's important because people want to go back and they want to say, "Well, I'm going to look at Calvin because Calvin is the." You know the right interpretation, which I think it's very limited by its historical era. Well, of course, as is mine, as is every interpretation, right? right? Every right. interpretation is limited by its historical setting, right? But what is brilliant is when we, as we start to work with it, and we realize the only the scripture is so great because it continues to. Well, and this is one of the one of the biggest us. reasons, you know, in in the, in teaching the hermeneutics class, you know, you look at the way a passage has been interpreted throughout the history mm-hmm. of the church, and you and that gives you some guidance and some wisdom uh, in in terms of because you can see some of the options maybe that are out there today have been around for a long time, right. and 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 you can see how people have argued for it and against it, and and it gives you a more informed position for for making your own right. interpretive choices. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, and then just the last couple pieces, we run, of course, into the problems of works righteousness in 1627. And Calvin explains it this way, that we are saved by grace, but at that out of God's good pleasure, he rewards us for our works. In other words, we do not do works to gain merit or God's attention, but rather they are a response to our obedience, which God chooses to award. So he is interpreting the Greek word apodidomi, repay positively and there are a number of english translations that do that they they translate it as reward okay i i wouldn't agree with that i think i think apodidomy here is more like repay in the sense of judging i think it's more of of calling people to account it's it's an accountability word Interesting because I think Calvin is going off of what had just been kind of in a he usually you know really looks at the words, mm-hmm. but maybe it's kind of a, a Reformation um, interpretation of I that think word. So. Because well, and, and as I said, there are a number of English versions still today mm-hmm. that use reward right. in this passage. Right. And, and partly, I think, you know, again, it, the whole idea that a believer, a follower of Jesus, someone who's committed to Christ is going to be judged on the basis of their works creates some theological problems mm-hmm. for those of us, particularly in the, in the reformed right, tradition right, or in absolutely. the Protestant, Protestant yeah, faith. Yep, yep. Right. And, and, and so, you know, you see the way people choose to deal with those problems in the way they translate right. the passage. Right. And, and, and so, um, well, and obviously this was what the big, big tripping point for Luther. Yeah. And so he's just responding to that, mm-hmm. but he's not. So for Calvin, this is about, this is about God rewarding people for what they do out of grace. Right. Not out of merit. Yeah. Right. I, I and I, I understand where Calvin gets to that, but I, I, I can't follow Calvin on that. I think, I think Jesus is saying that, that even disciples and especially believers, those who claim to follow Christ are going to be called to account for their actions, mm-hmm. um, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, "Even every idle word," and and I don't see that as as a threat of punishment. I see it more as um, well. Jürgen Moltmann views this as mm-hmm. a kind of an, a, a purgative thing that that in order for us to enter the pure love of God, we have to be purged of everything that is that is incompatible with that. Yeah, and and yeah. so so I you know I right. think the problem is. We think if we're judged by our works, then that means our salvation is dependent upon our works. Right. But I I want to affirm salvation by grace and judgment by works together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's the New Testament paradigm. Mm-hmm. Myself, I think so too. I think here what you would get is such a 
such a reaction to mm-hmm. Roman Catholicism. The um, whole idea of merit. Merit. Mm-hmm. So that we can't see outside of that. Right. Because that is like one of the number. I mean, if if there is a number one point, that, that makes is sense. it. That makes sense. So Calvin yeah. doesn't go there either, even though Calvin often does. Mm-hmm. He is very much clouded by... Yeah. By this and 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 isn't going to go outside of that right. because that would be too, especially in Calvin, it'd be too. Mm-hmm. Now we do have other reformers, and I didn't I didn't get into them who have more of a intermediate space, mm-hmm. but it becomes so heavily rejected. Um, but in the era of confessionalization, I've talked right. about before, right. because they they don't want to they don't want to they. At the end of the day, they don't want to find that harmony. And they don't mm-hmm. want to find it because it's more than just a religious movement, because it's a political and social movement as well. Well, and as, again, it's, I mean, they're, they're going against the grain of centuries of church tradition here. And they're, they're, yep. they're the, they're the, they're the uh, minority. They're the, they're the voices crying in the wilderness. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that, that inflict, that exactly. affects it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So this was just a little overview on how specifically Calvin interpreted this passage in his commentaries. Um, and uh, it, at least um, it, it seems, well, the whole thing is important, but uh, they spent a lot of time on the, on the passage right before it. But, and again, I feel like this whole passage is so central to the Reformation and the Reformation message that um, they uh, get kind of caught up in that at the end of the day and um, their translation. And so they spend a lot of time on the keys that we talked about last week mm-hmm. and uh, Peter being the rock that we talked about last time and then here this works righteousness issue. So those are kind of the three themes they pull out of this as um, attack points, if you will, yeah. against tradition. Okay, thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. And uh, as we were talking in our break about you know, what what is the real emphasis of this passage? And, you know, I, I think a lot of people are, are attracted to and yet frightened by the idea of taking up my cross. Does that mean that I have to give up the life I've been given um, for for Christ? What, what does that mean? Or does that mean that I just have something that I, I have to do? To, to accomplish, right? Because that's my cross and I get a picket. And I just, I think the passage leaves us a little confused, um, a little uncertain, and a little, you know, as I mentioned, even at the beginning where Peter rebukes Christ, that sense of, it's also a little scary. And so, you know, at the end of the day, how do we preach this and what is the message that really should come forth? So I'm going to let Alan take it away. And he's got, um, He's got a, a, a wealth of uh, ideas for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, I think the main theme in Matthew's gospel here is about discipleship. Mm-hmm. And it is that discipleship means following Jesus' example. And here, on a path that leads him to death on a cross. Um, but... As I mentioned in my segment, there, there, there are several ways that Matthew weaves a theme of dis- what true discipleship is and how true discipleship mm-hmm. means basically following Jesus' example. Jesus said at the baptism, you know, John said, I don't want to baptize you. I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And mm-hmm. Jesus said, no, this is, for, this is important to fulfill all righteousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by that, I think, I'm not saying, I don't think it's... The sort, some sort of ethical standard or some sort of ethical requirement, but rather it is the righteousness of the kingdom. Jesus is fulfilling God's redemptive purpose in the kingdom of God as he's laid out in the, in mm. the good news of the kingdom. And, um, and so that's Jesus' orientation. Jesus' orientation of his life, mm-hmm. his whole orientation of his life is toward fulfilling the righteousness of the kingdom of God, which means salvation mm-hmm. for us all. He's calling us to make that the orientation of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so again, how does how does that play itself out? Well, it plays itself out by the fruit that you bear. Right. Right. You know, it, yeah. it, it, and and fruit is not you know how many good things you do in the church. Right. Fruit is is 
how basically how you relate to people in right. this world. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the end of the day, that's where I see the sheep and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Yeah, the, the fruit of of the kingdom, fulfilling the righteousness of the kingdom, right. is basically worked out every day in the way you interact with, with people. With people, you know, as you as you're talking here, I keep thinking about living your life living your life fullness as you are relating to people, as you are giving to people, as you are interacting with people as, and, and that's just full. You're not spending your life thinking about dying, right? You're thinking about, or you're not spending your life thinking about what, what else can I get? Exactly. Exactly. Or, um, I keep thinking about these rich, rich, rich people that are like building up these, these, um, um, bunkers that they're going to survive in when the rest of the world's destroyed they're going to save themselves in their bunker and this is really a big thing i don't npr's had some pieces on this and they're building these you know multi-million dollar underground protective places with swimming pools and and (laughs) one of the guys is asking well what happens if one of the light bulbs goes out can you know and it's like yeah dude no because everything else is destroyed you're spending your whole life wrapped in your own little bubble of wealth, um, not helping other people, not thinking about other people. um, And you've already lost your life Mm -hmm. because what is life? If I, I've often asked, what is, what is, what is your life that there's no one else to share it with? I mean, seriously. And so it reminded me of that when you were talking about it, instead of a life where I'm going to live and I'm going to spend my time and my effort loving and caring and helping other people and not just accumulating stuff right. for my right. being the last one on the earth in my little bubble. I mean, well, I think I've told this yeah. story before, but I, I knew a fellow in a church that I pastored before and, and he was retired and he had a pretty decent retirement portfolio and he, he felt like his job in retirement was to watch um, CNBC to, to follow the market in order to, um, you know, track mm-hmm. how his investments were doing every day, all day. Wow. And, you know, talk about losing your life. Yeah, th- exactly. <laughs> I mean, he's glued to the television, watching, watching you know, up-to-date up reports on, on his, his investments. As a, and I'm, I'm thinking, wait a minute, don't, aren't there people who do that for a living? <laughs> right? Oh, that's funny. You know, uh, but t- I mean, you know, it's a, it's a very much of a parable of, you know, losing your life it and is. trying to gain the whole it world. Is. Yeah. When I was a kiddo, I was in fourth grade and we had fun, fun money. And you get fun money from the teacher for maybe doing something uh, uh, well on an exam or something. And you collected it, and then you could spend it on on things. Well, at the end of the year, I have $150 of fun money. And the teacher's like, that is, I didn't, that's no good after fourth grade. She was kind of mad at me for collecting it. But, oh, yeah. you know, it was, it was, the idea was that you could do, um, but what I learned from that whole lesson was because it was no longer worth anything, I gave it out to everybody. Oh, okay. And then they got a chance to, you know, spend it however yeah. they wanted. And yeah. so I learned a lesson about yeah. giving and about sharing. And ha- But yeah. it was interesting because I collected all this to hoard it up for no reason. Yeah. You know, that's just, but you have to think about your life in terms of, not yourself, but others too, you know? And well, and, and, you know, unfortunately in our society, it's almost a given that that's the way we live our lives. It we is. live our lives oriented around self, self-fulfillment, absolutely, self-care, um, self-care, self, um, <laughs> you know, you self-realization, know. self-actualization, you know, self-everything. Mm-hmm. We live our lives around, and this is the way, and I don't know, I think this may be something that, that my generation, you know, um, some of the some of the psychology about childhood development, you know, shifted with my generation, and, and so... Um, you know, and there's a lot of commentary out there about the way children have been raised and with a sense of entitlement. But, but um, I, I don't think, I don't think, I mean, obviously Jesus is addressing this centuries ago, so I don't think self-orientation or self-interest is something that's anything new. It, it's part of our humanity. Yeah. And, and um, it, it goes against the grain of our right. humanity to, to not make that the focus of our lives and right. to make something else the focus of our lives. And Jesus calls us 
to follow his example in making right. the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose right. in the kingdom of God the focus, the of, focus our lives. of our That's lives. That's fulfilling all yeah. righteousness. Yeah. And it, it, we fulfill that. We, we make that the way we, the, I mean, the, 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 the determination for whether or not we've made the kingdom of God our primary orientation mm-hmm. is how we live our lives. Right, right. And what, how we treat people, especially mm-hmm. especially how we treat the most vulnerable people. Right. And, you know, <laughs> that's that's something that, that I think people in this culture, you know, still struggle with. I remember growing up, you know, I grew up in the 60s and even in the early 70s. We really didn't have as much stuff back then. You know, there, there was a, an economic boom in the 50s, but in the middle class, people just really didn't have the, just the abundance of stuff. Oh, and, it's and, absolutely and, you know, with, true. With the, with, the, with the economic boom of the 90s and moving in, you know, the stock market going up mm-hmm. above, I remember the stock market going up above 10,000 was a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're above 30,000, right? No, right. And, and that's just wealth that has been generated in this country. Right. And um, as we have gotten more stuff, our stuff has taken possession of us. It, it has. And, and, it has. And, and we, you know, our, our, our orientation of our lives is primarily around my, our comfort, our entertainment, mm-hmm. and our security. Mm-hmm. Right. Self, Absolutely. self, self. Exactly. Right? exactly. And, 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 and that just seems to be natural. Right. That seems that, to be absolutely. what you're supposed to do. Exactly. And, that's and, that's what we're being taught. That's right. what secular culture is teaching us. Well, and and but, but and so this whole message of 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 turning away from that and making you know Jesus example, Jesus message of self-sacrificing love for the sake of others as the focus mm-hmm. of one's life. It's just. I mean, it's like it's it's like we're just as incomprehending as Peter was of Jesus. Right. saying he's going to die. Wait. I'm supposed to give up my life? No. I'm if I'm a Christian, I'm that means I get to get to have everything that I ever wanted in life. Right. Right. Well, that's the, you know, that's the whole prosperity gospel concept. Well, but it's not just that. It's I mean, we we assume that that if we if we if we if we do all the right things, if we're a good Christian, right. then then our family's going to be healthy and whole, that that you know, God's going to take care of us financially and with our careers, right. that you know, he's going to he's going to protect us, you know, and and so there's just these basic assumptions. It's not even it's not even the specific prosperity gospel. It's just these basic assumptions right. that people have always assumed right. about what it means. I mean, it goes back to Job, right? Right, right, you know, right, right. If, you, if, you're, if you're a truly uh, a person of faith and truly a person dedicated by, to God, then God's going to take care of you. Right. Right? And, and um, you know, that's not the message of Jesus. Right. The right. message of Jesus is, you know, I'm following God's purpose. I'm going to fulfill all righteousness, and that's going to lead me on a path that's going to take my right. life. And if you follow me... You're gonna you're gonna have to walk a path that's going to require the everything that you have to give, and in, right. in Matthew's context especially, yeah. it may take your life as well. Right. Oh, that's yeah. so good. Yeah. It's hard. It is it's hard. hard. It goes against it goes against what secular culture teaches us, but that's why this voice is so mm-hmm. important. Well, and and I you know I you know I love Bonhoeffer, and one of oh, my pet yeah. peeves is that the English translation of the cost of discipleship is a, is terrible. Right, and right. There is a better English translation of of Bonhoeffer's German work. It's simply called discipleship. And if you're interested in Bonhoeffer, I I urge right. you, I plead you, I beg with you, spend the forty dollars and get the the the, the real English the translation. Real English translation. Um, but you know he he really focuses on this. Almost in a in a a way that is, um, I mean, it's 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 to say it's challenging is to say the least. Yeah. And and but I think he's hit upon something here, you know, because it's it's essentially it's a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and then basically on discipleship. And he's very much framed by Matthew's gospel yeah. in, in his presentation here. Yeah. Wow. So get that. Read it. We all love Bonhoeffer because he's a, a modern day uh, martyr. Yes, indeed. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's uh, preach this well. All right, thanks, thanks. Christy.
That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.